Hello everyone, welcome to SNID. Studies in national and international development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNID has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national and global development. Please share a podcast with friends, family and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. SNID is hosted by Queen's University, which sits on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabeg Nation, and continues to benefit from ongoing colonization in the forms of extractions of resources, knowledges, and practices of indigenous peoples, not only in Kataraki, Kingston, but around the Turtle Islands. On behalf of SNID hosts who are settlers on this land, I would like to reiterate that SNID is committed to amplify the voices of scholars, activists, and artists who study, work, and create towards dismantling white supremacy and settler colonialism. I will be posting our lineup for this term on the chat, which we hope reflects this commitment. With that, I'm leaving the floor to Carolyn to introduce our amazing speakers today. Welcome everyone. Thank you for being with us today on our first SNID of the term. Um, so today we are thrilled to have with us Dr. Courtney Sito. Uh, Dr. Sito is an assistant professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies here at Queen's University. And she completed her degree in communications at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. And she has master's and undergrad degrees from UBC and U of T. Two years ago, she published her first book, Changing on the Fly, Hockey Through the Voices of South Asian Canadians to Critical Acclaim. Um, about the book, the Tai wrote, Changing on the Fly interrogates the culture of hockey honestly and from a place of love, offering a critique that is meant to change the nature of the sport so that everyone, not just white, straight Canadian men and boys, can truly have a place in it. Dr. Sito has organized public roundtables and training materials about racism in hockey and was recently named among the top 22 BIPOC leaders and influencers in hockey by Black Rosie Media. Uh, Dr. Sito is a star and we are lucky to have her here at Queen's University. Um, one of her latest projects has been in the area of waste studies, uh, where she's thinking about post-consumer materials, um, especially those that are marketed as green and sustainable, and thinking about where those end up. She recently produced a Shirk-funded film about bicycles and the circular economy, um, and this film has been traveling the film festival circuit, and it recently won Best Canadian Short Documentary at the BC Environmental Film Festival. So what we're going to do today is we're going to view this documentary um, after Dr. Sito gives a short introduction to it. Um, so we're going to stream it through Zoom uh, and then we'll follow with some prepared questions. So I'll have like a kind of informal interview with Dr. Sito um, and then we'll open it up to more general conversation and chat. And that's when you'll be able to ask questions um, either through the chat function or you can raise your hand um, and we'll get to you in order. Uh, and just a quick note that when we're streaming the documentary, all of you have your cameras off anyway, but we'll just keep cameras off to just um, optimize the, the streaming. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Zito for an introduction to the documentary. Perfect. Thanks very much, Dr. Prouse. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Very excited to be here as part of the SNID lineup. Um, and you did some excellent Googling there for the intro, so thank you. Um, Revolutions was inspired by the documentary The True Cost, if any of you have seen that, about the environmental and labor issues associated with fast fashion. 
uh, while watching that film, I wondered what would this story look like if it were about sporting goods, because it's a conversation that is pretty non-existent uh, and certainly something that I had never really thought about much before. As part of this project, in its very early stages, I attended the World Ethical Apparel Roundtable Conference in Toronto, also known as the WEAR Conference. Um, and I spoke with some folks from companies like Lululemon, whose their entire job was to think about the carbon footprint of the products that they make eat. And yet they still hadn't considered what happens to their skis or whatever when they leave them in the donation bin. Um, and then I came across an article in Outside Magazine in 2017 titled The Dirty Secret Hiding in Your Carbon Mountain Bike. And it was about how a factory in China was throwing their carbon fiber scraps into the ocean um, and about the pollution that was in the area of the, of the, fa of the uh, factories. After that, I learned about bike graveyards, which are also in China, and that was the result of an excessive overproduction of share bikes. And so the bike became the storytelling device because it's something that is often trumpeted as a symbol of environmentalism, social progress, and equitable access, but it quietly sits in landfills with all of our other garbage. So this is really a story about all sporting goods um, because we have yet to figure out a way to negotiate safety, performance, and environmental need. While I was filming this study, um, I conducted an online survey of just over 1,400 cyclists and bike owners, and unsurprisingly, 96% of respondents said that they believe cycling is good for the environment. But when I asked them if they thought that bike manufacturing is good for the environment, 20% said yes, 17% said no, and 63% were unsure. And I think that the large percentage who answered unsure might be feigning a little willful ignorance because we do know that rubber is an oil product, whether your bike is made of aluminum or steel, it requires mining and carbon fiber is chemically made. So there is this dissonance um, in the cycling industry, which is why I think this conversation is important to disentangle the act of cycling from the material of bicycles themselves. Um, so production on Revolution started in the summer of 2019, took a bit of a pause through 2020, uh, picked it back up in 2021, and we were able to hire remote film crews in Los Angeles, New York, and the Netherlands to help us complete filming. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that, Dr. Zito. Um, I've, this is the second time that I've seen it, and I take something new from it every time, and so I'm, I look forward to watching it again and again. Um, so I have a number of questions already kind of organized for you. But if other people have questions that they want to ask, you're more than welcome to put your hand up now or just stick questions in the chat. Um, but maybe I'll just start. Um, you had spoken about a survey that you took of people before doing this particular project. And 63%, you said, had been unsure um, if like the, the actual production process and the manufacturing process and the wasting process of bikes was a good thing or was environmentally sustainable. And I'm wondering, um, because you're really intervening in these dominant discourses of bicycling as being sustainable, like have you heard from audiences about how this particular documentary has perhaps shifted the way that they've thought about this? Um, do you think it has changed that like 63% being uncertain about what happens with their waste? Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, I had a fourth year student last term doing an independent research study with me. And so uh, it's actually Caitlin in the film. And so because she's on the Queen's cycling team and she's like 
you know, a local cyclist and knows a lot of folks, she was kind of like the easy in to do some audience reception study with this. So she ran four small focus groups. Um, I think we ended up with about 12 cyclists in total. Um, Some are in Oakville and some were on the Queen Cycling team. And the consistent thing is that it's new information for cyclists. Like they've just really never thought about this. Um, But what they can change is also kind of up for grabs at this point. Um, We tried to kind of tap back in with them four weeks after they watched it to see if maybe they had changed some of their own behaviors and consumption habits, but the window's kind of quite small. Um, so it's hard to know. And they're also off cycling season. So some of them were like, well, it would have to be like next season when I'm like buying new things and taking my bike into the shop. But yeah, I think there's unfortunately a lot of exasperation being like, I'm at the end of this supply chain. There's only so much I can do, especially as students. There's only so much that I can afford. So as students, they actually are generally more frugal about things. They can't just go out and buy new parts and things. So they'll kind of like use it as long as possible. Um, but then it, they also found that um, a lot of it comes to the repair shop. And sometimes you might they might be trying to upsell you. And if you don't actually know anything about bike parts and maintenance and things, then you just kind of go with what the repair person says and you're not necessarily going to push back. So, you know, it's like, how much are we expecting of consumers to know about these things and go in and like um, have their own type of knowledge and how much of it are we going to push upstream with repair technicians and brands and, uh, and manufacturers and stuff like that. And so that's really where we're trying to get the conversation is more upstream, but um, yeah, we're still kind of early in distribution and things like that. So. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great things that your documentary does really well is that it, there is a a small focus on individual behavior change, but you also do point to the fact that there does need to be changes in the manufacturing process, in the resource extraction process. Um, and you do interview Dr. Myra Hurd, who is a professor here at Queen's University, who is within this kind of interdiscipline of waste studies, who points to the fact that we do need like governmental change and need to put pressure, exert pressure on our governments to change and to create regulations around waste and resource extraction. Um, is that a conversation that has kind of arisen from this documentary or that you've been involved in? Like what kinds of like governmental changes do you think might need to take place in order to shift responsibility off the individual? Um, and off the consumer. Yeah, so when I, we were interviewing folks in Colorado with um, the company Melinda, which is the carbon fat, uh, carbon fiber company that towards the end where they have this new um, Vitramer technology where you can kind of undo what you've created. And it was really interesting talking to materials engineers because I don't generally talk to materials engineers in my everyday life. And they were advocating for all like the big, large scale changes that we would do in so- sociology and cultural studies. Like um, they wanted government legislation so that they could get their product to market. So when we talk about this idea of free market and like the cream rising to the top, it doesn't account for the fact that a lot of times you need money to stay afloat long enough for people to be like, oh, this is the best product. So you have a lot of startups that actually have very... um, novel innovations that will never last long enough because they don't have enough capital capital to be competitive. And so their argument was, we need government to say, you need to stop using what they use the term legacy materials, which would be steel and uh, aluminum and things like that, um, to give them a chance and for companies to accept like a hit on a quarter or a year's 
um, profits to make that shift over. Cause at this point it's just kind of inertia. Um, and they're just going to stick with those products as long as possible. So, yeah, I think it, it's kind of the perfect interdisciplinary project because you really do bring everybody together and you're pulling in the, in the same direction. Um, but then it comes down to political will, unfortunately. So that's kind of like the end game. Um, one of the questions that I hadn't thought about before, but um, as you know, like I'm a geographer and you, you spoke with like a number of these different kinds of startups and community organizations that are trying to do things differently. And I wonder like, what is the geography to these kinds of organizations? Like, are, are you finding them in certain parts of the world in certain places where sustainability discourses are very prominent, like in Vancouver, for instance, um, like where, where are these located and are there particular like governmental regulations that are making them more likely to be in some places rather than others? Do you mean like the bike repair and like that side of things? Yeah. Yeah. So the cool thing about, I think the cycling community is that these bike repair shops exist everywhere. They are the last filter that we have for the landfill. Um, and yes, there are more of them in places like Vancouver and Colorado that are kind of known as cycling havens, but um, there's a group called the Wrench, W-R-E-N-C-H in Winnipeg. And they actually go into their local landfills to look for bikes, to pull them out, to refurbish them and get them back out into the community. So this work goes on, I would say globally, um, because the bike is seen as such a valuable transportation tool most of the time, right? Like it's not, um, I think that's the thing about sporting goods is that we don't really like to throw them away because we know that they're valuable. We paid a lot of money into them. So this is why people tend to donate them to a consignment place or something like that. But all that really does is shift the responsibility of the waste off of our shoulders and onto somebody else's. And we feel like we've done our job, um, when I spoke to somebody at Sports Junkies in Vancouver, which is a sport consignment place, they're like, most of their stuff, they can resell 90% uh, of their stuff because they make sure it's good enough when it comes in that it's going to go back out. But at some point, they had to take 300 pairs of ski boots to the landfill because there was just nothing to do with them. You can't recycle them. There's too many different kinds of plastic in it and parts. And so they were like, yeah, the brands have to create something that we can disassemble and that we could actually recycle or, or do something different with it. Um, and then when we talk about bikes that go to the global south, um, they only want bike shop bikes. That means like brand name, high-end bikes, not your Walmart sport check bikes, which is usually what gets donated because they are crappy bikes. Um, but they know that uh, they need to be durable. They can't have bikes that you're shipping across the globe and they only last for, you know, a couple of rides. They need to be repairable as well. Um, and that's a huge issue with consumer and bikes. And when we say consumer and bikes, I would generally think of like $250 as a cheap bike or something like that, but we're actually talking up to about $700. So you have to be able to drop quite a bit of money for a bike that you can foreseeably repair um, for a few years. And that's just not reasonable for most consumers. Mm -hmm. So you, I mean, you're, you're kind of getting to this question when you're speaking about consumer or sporting goods in general, but how similar are the dynamics with respect to other sporting goods, right? So I know your focus has been specifically on bicycles, um, but are there like other connections you've made with other kinds of goods beyond just the bicycle sector? Or is there something uh, more specific about cyclists and cycling culture and repair culture within cycling? 
I think cycling represents the leading edge of sporting goods with respect to this conversation because the bike has different components that you can, in theory, repair um, and is supposed to be this long lasting thing. Everything else that we make is pretty um, disposable. So whether it's hockey sticks and golf clubs and, and skis, one of the um, bike recycling folks that I interviewed in Denver, Colorado, he had worked in Vail, uh, the ski mountain. Previously, he worked for um, a ski manufacturing company. And the reason why he left is because he said that so many high-end skiers come to Vail for like a week from Europe. They buy a pair of skis and they throw them away when they're done because they don't need them and they're flying home to Europe. That K2 started making skis that only lasted for a week. So it is definitely an industry-wide problem. Um, and even for the cycling industry, they're not quite sure what to do because Specialized started to collect back their old frames, realizing that this was a problem. Um, but what they ended up with was warehouses in Salt Lake City and Montreal full of bike frames and nothing to do with them because the technology cannot undo the linear manufacturing process. Um, so they really want to change, I would say, in cycling. And they, I think that they do actually hold that environmental um, consciousness quite close to their heart. But again, you have to revamp the entire manufacturing and design process uh, before you can actually make a dent in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so to switch tacks a little bit, to get away from kind of the content, but think a little bit more about the form of the documentary, like you are, I would say you're, you're an academic first, but you've also always been interested in different kinds of public engagement. Um, so I know you were like a finalist for the Shirk Storytellers grant, and I think I saw a video that you made for that um, like years ago. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you came to film, to documentary film especially, what motivated you, why did you think that this was a useful medium to um, to communicate with the public um, what in what can be um, a little daunting right for someone who maybe hasn't done this before so if you could just speak a little bit about that that would be really useful yeah I mean uh, to have to have made a documentary was a bucket list item um, and so I was just kind of waiting for the right project for that to happen um, I would say that like I'm a hobbyist video maker with travel videos and stuff like that and I wanted to produce this all myself and that would kind of be my stamp of approval on it um, the first day of filming in Colorado I realized that I could not be the researcher and the production team as well. Um, and the last interview with Heather from Melinda is a little off, out of focus. And that was a interview that I recorded. Um, so that's why we uh, decided to spend that money towards hiring proper labor instead of me trying to figure things out. Um, but I think that it's a really good tool when you need people to see things that they don't necessarily see every day. And with waste, it is always hidden away from us. That is what Western culture has done. Uh, we put it in a garbage can, trucks come and take it away. We don't know where the landfill is. We don't go to the landfill. The landfills are often um, in low-income racialized communities. Uh, we hide it in the ocean, which is also a really good way to not see the waste that we have um, created. So the visual method I thought was really key for people to see actually what happens um, to their bicycles at the end of life. And if COVID hadn't have happened, I think our footage would have been quite different as well um, to, to be able to get more kind of like landfill footage type things. But um, yeah, I don't think that people need to make a film for every project. Um, but I think in certain instances when you're like, okay, let's actually see what is going on um, that people aren't aware of, I think that's quite helpful. Mm -hmm. 
And when you were assembling this team of people to make the final product, I know it was really important for you to have a very BIPOC production team and, and filmmaking team. So could, could you speak a little bit to why you think that was important and how that influenced both the process and the product? Yeah, I mean, I think if if most of your research is talking about intersectional intersectionality and, and power relations, then um, it should influence pretty much any project that you take on and, and how you uh, how that unfolds. So uh, the director for this film is John Chang, uh, somebody that I worked with at, at UBC. Um, and we did we did the interviews mostly just like trying to find people who were talking about bikes and sustainability. So that was like just who we could get and who fit the, the narrative. Um, but again, it's like on the production side of things, you can be a lot more conscious about who you're hiring as labor. Um, and so, yeah, we tried to intentionally hire as much racialized and um, uh, women laborers as possible to also to balance out uh, the fact that the, most of the talking heads on screen are men, uh, white men in particular. Um, so that also came up in the um, the animation as well. So Carla Monterosa did the animation. And I think when it kind of like spans out to people talking to people, you can see that a racialized woman puts racialized people into the animations as well. Um, so I think that those little things make a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, so I do wanna open it up to the audience to see if they have any questions. Again, you can pop questions into the chat or raise your hand. Um, so I'll maybe give a moment to see if anyone has any questions right now based on the documentary or anything that Dr. Zito has said since? Is there anything out there? I mean, in the meantime, so get your questions prepared and, and start putting them in the chat, but I'll just ask one more. Um, so you are in kinesiology and health studies, which is a fairly like interdisciplinary kind of space within the academy and within Queens. And can you maybe just speak a little bit to like what it allows you to do to be in kinesiology and health studies? Because your work has ranged quite widely in terms of the things that you're interested in. Um, so yeah, what does like sociology of sport and cultural studies of sport allow you to do methodologically, conceptually? actually um, that you might not find in a very kind of strict disciplinary home? Um, well, I mean, that was one of the things that I asked when I interviewed for the job here was like, if I do something that's not to do with sport, is that okay? And luckily the head was like, yes, like as long as you're producing scholarship, it doesn't really matter what it is. So um, the next grant I have going with Dr. Shobhan Xavier in the School of Religion is around food um, as a form of resistance, uh, anti-racism and reconciliation. So yeah, I'm generally a very pro project driven scholar, um, kind of go where um, something inspires me and whatever the method or um, kind of background of literature takes me, um, you just kind of go there. So I've been reading a lot of food literature, which is new to me, uh, but I think that's fun too. It's like reading new things because I even get bored of talking about the same things over and over again. So um, yeah, I mean, geography would be similar that you have such a breadth of uh, research that goes on under it. And I think that that's um, quite liberating sometimes, also a little bit difficult trying to meld everybody's um, different disciplines together and getting students to understand really what goes on. Um, but I think as an academic, it's, uh, it's nice to have that freedom. Mm -hmm. Any questions out there?
I mean, I can keep asking, but I think it's going to get a little bit <laughs> one dimensional. Here we have one um, from Selena Servinus. How do you feel about secondhand stores such as Salvation Army and their possible impact on this conversation? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's becoming more of a problem, not necessarily because of the Salvation Army, but because of fast fashion that they just get so much they get so many donations that they can't necessarily um, deal with them in a good way. And we end up sending a lot of our stuff to the global South uh, because we know that it won't resell here. So all your stuff from like Sheen and Forever 21 and H&M, that's just like not of a, an appropriate quality. Um, it all tends to end up in, in landfill. So thrifting is definitely um, good but we've also gotten to the place culturally where thrifting has become kind of high end. Like people are looking for retro things and it's become a marker of class in a way that it, um, of like middle and upper class as, as opposed to kind of like low income um, secondhand usage. So there is an interesting um, dynamic that is going on there. It's like good for the environment, but also I feel like we have too much incoming um, that it's not actually the reuse as we have uh, kind of promoted it to be environmentally sustainable in that way. But yeah, generally speaking, buying things off of Facebook marketplace and trying to get things secondhand is is the more environmentally friendly option, um, but not if it's because you're bringing so much in that stuff has to constantly go out as well. Any other questions? lots of people out there. Um, well, I can ask another one, maybe. Um, you kind of alluded to it in your discussion previously, but can you speak a little bit to how COVID-19 affected your project? Because I know a lot of us out there are academics or are graduate students or undergraduate students who have had their research projects affected by COVID. And it's always useful to think a little bit about how to kind of pivot our work um, or what to do when we have this unforeseen kind of really big situation that, that affects what we're able to do. So could you maybe talk through what happened when COVID hit and what that allowed you to do that was maybe different than your initial plan? Yeah, so... COVID actually made the film far more environmentally friendly than it would have been in its original proposal, which is a really cool reflection to have because originally I would have taken a couple of grad students and our camera people and would have flown to different locations in Canada, the United States to do our filming. Um, and then when COVID hit, that just wasn't going to happen. And so I spoke with my director, John, I was like, what are our options here? Because um, with grant funding, you also have a time limit. So we couldn't just wait forever for the pandemic to end. And so he had heard that um, other film crews were starting to do remote filming, that they would hire somebody locally, and then the producer team will zoom in to, to kind of direct folks. So that's what we ended up doing. We hired local um, teams in the area where we needed um, an interview filmed. And then John and I would hop on Zoom with like the camera person's like phone or something. And we would ask questions via Zoom and they would kind of do all the tech and then like ship us uh, a hard drive with the, the recording on it and stuff. Um, so, yeah, just like a different kind of um, labor that was involved. But it also meant that we got to go 
go to the Netherlands, which is cool because we wouldn't have been able to do that um, uh, with our previous budget. And it's also nice to pay people for their labor, their creative labor during a time when that industry was hit really hard. Um, so that was really beneficial and we got to make some new friends and, and that was really cool. Um, we have another question in the chat here from Yanika. They say, I'm not sure how to phrase this, but I'm wondering for one, how this impacts the Global South and also generally what the role of the Global South is as a player in all of this. Yeah, it's a very good question and a very complex one. Um, so if we think of Global South as the manufacturing side, because 90% of our bikes are made in from three factories in China and Taiwan. That's like basically where they all come from. We have shifted all of our manufacturing waste to those areas. Um, so that's part of the conversation we can have. And they're also dealing with um, kind of some of the waste and um, and yeah, some of the travel logistics and the pollution and things like that, right? So um, the other thing is like they, they, so it's kind of like a full circle almost. So it's like they're made in the global south, and then we use them, and then we donate them back to the global south because we don't we don't have any further use, or we have too many of them. Um, and Dr. Lindsay Hayhurst at York University leads uh, a bikes for development um, research consortium, which you should Google if you're at all interested in that. And they have research teams in Guatemala. Um, can't remember which African countries, but I think a couple projects in Africa and India as well, looking at how bikes are used for development. Um, and so kind of the flip side of what happens when our bikes leave our shores. Um, but yeah, again, it's like if we're making poor bikes, if we're asking for poorly made bikes, then they, they just kind of travel around the world um, and they're not nearly as durable for, for uh, use in the global south as well. And they need far more dur durable bikes than we use on our kind of like paved roads and, and having uh, mechanics more um, kind of easily accessible. Ian Donaldson has asked a question in the chat here. Um, do you believe the development of a completely biodegradable bike is possible as the Dutch civil engineer alluded to in the documentary? Would it be affordable or producible on a mass scale making it an accessible option for all? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that it's possible. Who knows? We've never really actually asked anybody to try this. So we're not really sure. Um, I, I did support a Kickstarter for a fully biodegradable shoe. I still haven't received those shoes, but hopefully it's something it's like you can wear it and then you just bury it in the ground and supposedly it becomes nutrients for plants. Um, but easier with soft goods like that than actual technical things like bikes. Um, but I think the point of thinking more radically towards a, a fully biodegradable um, bike is to push the, the design and manufacturing possibilities as far down the scale as possible. Because right now we just work in these very small areas of like efficiency, um, as opposed to rethinking how we do things all together. Um, something that didn't make it in the documentary, but did make it in the journal article is that in Europe, they have um, kind of like a leasing system for bikes, a company called Swap Fiat's. And instead of you, especially for university students buying a bike, you lease the bike for, you know, like $20 a month 
month or something like that. If it breaks down, you call them and they come and they pick it up and they like give you a new bike um, and they'll swap it out. And so they're taking responsibility for kind of like maintaining the bike to make sure that they can um, stay on the road as long as possible. And when we asked survey participants about whether they would want to lease a bike or whether they prefer to own a bike, most people said they still wanted to own a bike. So I think part of it is also just the idea of individual ownership has to change for us to move towards a more circular economy. Um, and let me say right here that the idea of a circular economy is actually just indigenous practice, but we've come up with circular economy as like the Western business term. Um, and yes, would it be cost effective is, is another good question. We know right now that the, the things that are most um, environmentally friendly in theory are not necessarily very cost effective. Um, and if we look at other materials that we have used for bikes, like I talked to a couple of folks who make wood bike frames, which I thought, surely that's got to be better than um, mining steel and aluminum, but they lacquer the heck out of the bikes so that they won't biodegrade because people won't buy a wood bike if they think it's going to fall apart on them. So you take something that's very sustainable and then you make it unsustainable so that consumers will buy it, right? Um, and we also talked to folks about bamboo bikes, which is kind of like a a fringe idea whether it would actually become mass produced for Western consumers is unlikely. Um, so there are definitely a lot of other options out there. There's even a YouTube video about somebody who made a fully cardboard bike. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do with the cultural shift as to how we see our goods and the expectation of those two. Um, because for Eric from Circular Cycling, his dream would be that when you're done with your bike and you want a new one, which is mostly what we want, we want new styles of things, not necessarily a whole new thing, um, is that you could take it back to the store as a lease and you can get a new color. You can get like you can piece together a fully new bike um, and that it always goes back to the, the store at the end of life. Right. So that um, it's always within the same um supply chain and so i think that in and of itself would be far more radical uh than necessarily um getting us to the biodegradable bike if we can just keep using the bikes that we've already made that would be quite helpful at this point one of the things that you mentioned there was moving away from this like individual ownership model and so i wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on like bike shares and bike co-ops and the kinds of wastes that they produce and the relationships that they might have with particular um, repair shops. Like, is that an, a site of intervention that might have a mass impact because there are so many of those bicycles out there? Yeah, the problem with bike share is that, again, we have just, we've taken a, something that's counter-normative and then just co-opted it into a capitalist system, um, which is why we have bike graveyards. So we're just producing as many bikes because anybody can come into a city and be like, I want to open a bike share. It's a good business. And so they're not necessarily doing it for environmental reasons. And it's the same thing that happened with um, car sharing, right? Like Zipcar was supposed to reduce the amount of cars on the road and car to go and those kinds of things. And then we came up with Uber and now everybody just bought a new car to be an Uber driver. Um, and that kind of undercut the whole purpose of it. So I think that's the problem is that 
um, to we make small moves towards a more circular economy and it gets co-opted back into a capitalist system where we're kind of producing too much. And the same thing happened in Kingston. We had um, a couple of years ago, we had a share bike system here and then that entire fleet ended up into a recycling slash garbage bin somewhere. And it showed up on social media and people were like, why are we throwing away these perfectly good bikes? And the city was like, don't worry, we have a new flight uh, fleet coming and these are getting quote unquote recycled. But what actually happens to those frames when they go to the recycling center is pretty much unknown as well. Um, so yeah, bike sharing is problematic. The development of e-bikes is becoming even more problematic with all of the batteries that we are going to have. And they are by and large cheap batteries that will end up in the landfill. Um, so yeah, just like using the same bike that you have or not buying one. I currently don't have a bike because after doing this project, I was like, I don't know how I can get a bike um, and kind of make sense of all of it. So yeah, it's, it's a tough one for the society that we live in. Mm -hmm. We have, meanwhile, had a nice conversation going in the chat around thrifting culture, um, which I don't know that much about, but speaking about how that's become less accessible as well, and also as similar to the bike shares has become co-opted um, and become more of a high class like status symbol um, or status process as much as um, it's about accessibility or reusing goods. Are there any other questions out there? Okay, well, you've given us a lot of conversation. I mean, you've given us an amazing documentary, but also a lot of food for thought here in our discussion. Um, if anyone has any questions after, I'm sure Dr. Sito would be more than happy to respond to you. Um, she also teaches here at Queen's. So for those of you who are undergrad students or grad students, I highly recommend taking a course with Dr. Sito. Um, there's lots of ways of, of continuing to learn from her on this particular area and all of the other really amazing things that she's currently working on. Um, so thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I really appreciate all of you for coming here today. Um, and just before we close, there's a couple of things that I wanted to alert your attention to. Um, so first, we are having another SNID session next week, and it's a book launch, um, or Dr. Kukreja is uh, is launching. A, she, the book came out, I believe, late last year, um, but she's going to give a book talk during SNID, and then later that day, so next Thursday, I believe at 7 p.m., there's going to be an in-person book launch at Novel Idea. So the independent bookstore on Princess Street. Um, so you can come to SNID at 1 p.m. virtually to hear about the book and then go and pick up a copy and mingle and, and meet some other people and other folks interested in, in that topic at Novel Idea. And then tonight, um, there is a panel on Black queer Islams, and I'll put this in the chat as well. Um, so that's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. I believe it's virtual and you can register at the following link. So there's information about the series, um, which is a Black Studies speaker series. And then if you're interested in attending, you can register at that second link there. So I just wanted to highlight both of those. Aicha, did you want to say anything else on either of those points or anything else? We're good. Okay, perfect. Um, so thanks again, Dr. Sito, and thank you everyone for coming. Um, and we hope to see you next week uh, at the book talk. Bye everyone. Thanks everybody. Thank you so much.